0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Drink, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Weiwa Chin and George Lee with us. Weiwa is the founder and president of the Chinese American Citizens Alliance Greater New York. George is also a part of that organization. And just today, actually, George was on a call with David, an earlier live stream on um, anti-Semitism and uh, Jewish-Asian relations. So maybe we'll hear a little bit about that. But before we get started, uh, did anyone bring anything to the table to drink? Weiwa, you? tea or nice
1: cof- christmas tea
0: it's actually tea thank you oh, okay okay george anything for you oh i
2: i've been wanting to get a cup of coffee after since lunch <laughs> <laughs> i'll get one after this
0: <laughs> and david I, did i hear you say you know i love it when you bring fireball whiskey to the table
3: yeah fireball whiskey you know it, it's it's delicious what can i tell you
0: that's very holiday-ish I'm boring in that i just have wine, but you know, like you, Weiwa, I have a glass that says Santa define nice. So I think your glass is almost as important as your drink sometimes. <laughs> I right, mean, so I've got to, before we get started, I've got to tell you a little bit. I don't know, um, Weiwa and George, if you know this about me, but I grew up in Asia I grew up mainly in Southeast Asia. And then when I went to school, I studied Chinese and I lived and worked in, in China, in several places in Nanjing, and Shanghai, Beijing. And so a lot of my network are uh, not just Chinese Americans, you know, Chinese, Chinese. And one of the things that I did among many things I did in China was deal with uh, Chinese who wanted to come over to the United States for education. So helping with that, you know, the educational passports and J-1s, visas and all that kind of stuff, that was one of the things. And, you know, it was crazy because I've got two things that I kind of want to get out there. The first is that years ago, I would say maybe a decade even, I mean, people were scrambling from all over the world, not just China, but that was my expertise with China, to get visas because they wanted to come to the United States for education. And over the past couple of years, Not at all. India's dried up. China's dried up. And there's other reasons. There's internal reasons to the reasons why there's the global reasons like economy and whatnot. But I have heard several people say, you know, they're just not really interested in the American education system. Like some of the troubles that they've been seeing lately, they're just kind of like it's not what it used to be. It's not what we used to come over for. Um, that's the first thing. And 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 I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But the other thing that's really an interesting change for me, um, having done this work and been, you know, living and working in China since the 90s, is that I you wrote this in your piece for City Journal, Weiwa. You wrote this, and and I thought it was really interesting. To me, it really was the issue of meritocracy that brought, in particular, Chinese Americans out and and, and kind of Politicize them, if you will, and you even mentioned this, and 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 maybe that's where we start in your piece. That that was an issue that, well, for the most part, I think Chinese Americans were um, not, somewhat apolitical in some ways. I mean, again, I'm stereotyping that as a generalization, but you really saw, and you and you and you wrote wrote on this. You saw this around education, and could you speak a little bit on why you felt that that. Had some sort of cohesion in the asian American community
1: so, first of all thank you for inviting me to be on your program uh, this is a good chance for us to really enlarge the, the the thinking of what really concerns us in our relations as well as our concept of merit what are the basic principles that we're working on right now um, it, merit is a key item here as uh, most People know there are, are Asians who are very, very concerned about education. We believe in it. We uh, think that, that it's a good thing for not just us, but for everybody. And it's not really a, a, a one culture versus another culture. We know that there are certain cultures who may prize it more, but we do believe that it's good for everybody. And so we start off on that premise and say that there is something called basic good education. And people did come from around the world, thinking that this is a place where you can uh, study not for ideology, but for the basic facts and figures and information to learn what logic means, to learn what reasoning means, and, and be able to discuss this openly. Openly, uh, and we don't have that kind of of environment in the same way that we had just several years ago. It used to be that people were coming out from uh, China or Russia, they would come out and be able to say all these things and not be afraid. And now all of a sudden, everybody's walking on eggshells because they're afraid that they may say something that will cause them to be canceled. That is not American. That is not really something that can increase and enhance our ability to be educated Uh, and rational people. You have to have that kind of discourse to be able to debate, to discuss facts. If there are facts that you don't like, they're still facts, and you must address them. And so when you get to the point that it is not as important to go and discuss what is a one plus one equals two and say that, well, that doesn't count now. That doesn't matter. We have to have math appreciation because not everybody can do math as well. That means that you have to take seats away from certain people who are really engaged in that kind of study. That's not good. And we saw that happening. That was something that uh, we saw in Education First, where they were trying to take away uh, seats from Asians, not because they became suddenly dumber or lazier, but just because they were Asian. uh, And they did not really address the question of what is education for? It is for teaching people everywhere and that's something we have to get back to.
0: In, in your piece you mentioned too and I thought this was really interesting you mentioned uh, you know Russians and Chinese in particular in coming together in the in the New York area and I thought that you know we've talked a lot to a lot of Russian immigrants around this issue I know David has as well and what they're seeing and the comparisons that they're making to what they saw you know back home is really is really rather shocking too. So I think that for me in particular, hearing the voices coming out of places like Russia and China, more so than say maybe a place like India um, is, is more of a, what's the word I want to use, an alert to, you know, to, to me that there's something wrong when people are making comparisons to those systems.
1: Well, it is a shock for a lot of the immigrants coming over here. They're used to doing things in math in third grade, and all of a sudden they see it being taught in the eighth grade curriculum, and that's crazy. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, it, it, they see their kids falling behind, and so when a lot of these groups, these immigrant groups, have uh, classes outside, it's not just for um, privilege or something like that—that that narrative is all wrong. It is really mm-hmm. trying to uh, complement and, uh, and really take care of some of the deficiencies in the public education system uh, that parents would say, "I'm going to take some of my hard-earned money. Uh, it is a sacrifice, and put it into some uh, programs after school on weekends, so that their kids would have that chance to be uh, catching up to hopefully the rest of the world." we are falling behind in america and we do need people to focus on how to keep our standards high
3: so you know we're 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 at this current ideological moment there's this idea of meritocracy is that the main concern that you see among chinese american leaders and maybe other if you want to expand it other or asian americans or other immigrants is the meritocracy ideal being challenged is it this, uh, the idea that maybe you'll be targeted by people in this sort of racial equity sweep where, where uh, you'll, be, you'll be blamed for oppression. I mean, how, where do you think the, uh, the main trigger points are for Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, especially as they look in, the, as they operate in this current environment?
1: Well, uh, unquestionably, there's a matter of targeting that is beyond even merit. But I think that merit is part of it. So you could say that um, we're, we're going to get rid of merit because we want to prize, first of all, a, a, racial dynamics. We're going to do the racial spoils thing. And so uh, that means that somebody's going to get targeted. And it's not based on merit or reason, uh, but it's based on uh, basically a kind of, of different dynamics talking about the oppressors and victims you know those are names that are coming up titles that uh, in terms that are really hurting people's ability to talk to one another. If you start off by saying that somebody is a born an oppressor or born a victim uh, if that sort of stops the conversation right there you know what, what where is the individual in this case where is the ability for people to say that uh, we can determine our lives and to improve it for ourselves and everybody else around us. But if you fall into that trap of saying that everybody's divided into these two camps, uh, I would say, first of all, to divide people into these camps like that, that's psychological abuse. You know, if you looked at anybody and said that, well, if you went to a, a study uh, people and they said that, well, before I even decide and listen to you, I've already determined that you're an oppressor. You're going to be put in one camp, and uh, I've looked at you and said, "Okay, I don't need to know anything about you. I put you into the victim camp." You start having as uh, the psychosis going on. We have this mass psychosis going on, which is very abusive to everybody. Uh, when you have you know, the, the the Asians, uh, I've heard this from directly from people that uh, we they uh, Asian parents who have sent their kids to school. And then after a while, they've noticed that the kids are coming back changed. And they're much quieter. They're much more uh, uh, scared to talk because all of a sudden they are considered to be in that category of being mm-hmm. a potentially either oppressor or victim, neither of which is good. And so, uh, when, when you're a thinking person and you have to say, where do I fit in this world? And you have to think of yourselves on those terms. You cannot really do the best for yourself or for your community around you. So the kind of, of impact that you have, starting from the schools, when you have schools that will say, well, we're going to exclude you because of your race. That's saying you don't belong here. That's exactly the same kind of thing that's being said on the streets. If your schools themselves tell the kids, you don't belong here, not because of what you yourself did, but because of what you look like, that's the exact thing that we see now on the streets when you have thugs coming up to people and saying, you don't belong here, and you slug them. So how is that different? It is the same. One is more physical, and the other is more psychological or mental, but It is the same message that's coming through that is extremely harmful to both the people who are committing this kind of crimes and their crimes in both sides. This is the kind of Asian hate when you talk about hate. It's Asian hate in the schools by this kind of exclusion. It's a modern Chinese exclusion act and it's the same kind of hate right on the streets. This is not the time for the kind of, of sitting back to stop and accept it. I think this is the time to stand up and say that we don't accept this. Mm. So, you
3: know, one of the um, ideas that's gotten a lot of play and it is this idea of the model minority myth. Um, And I'm sure you're familiar with this. I'll just do my best to define it. Um, It's the idea that certain uh, minorities in this country, um, constitute a model minority that are th- that that other minorities should look up to and rep and replicate. Um, it, but it's used to actually uh, the idea of it being a myth is a it's not true and b it's used to try to shut that down so that there's no discussion about cultures, various cultures and how they operate on the American scene. It's a way of saying you don't. Know, it is illegitimate to talk about Asian culture and how it creates success. You call it a myth, and you and you and you say it's a it's a form of racism. It's an easy way to shut down the, the whole discussion around it. Um, to, how how much have you thought about that? Dealt with it? And how popular? It, I've heard a lot. I have to tell you, I've heard a lot of Chinese Americans and Asian American organizations talk about this and try to stop people from using it. And, and I've I've seen various Asian American organizations put on seminars and workshops on how not to use the model minority myth. Um, so. How do you regard the whole
1: thing? Uh, Personally, I think that we're wasting a lot of time on a term that doesn't mean a ton. I think that when you say something like a model minority, uh, sure, there are people who like to stereotype. I thought we were beyond stereotyping. So let's start off on that. Uh, But I do think that if you want to talk about specific traits and characteristics that help people try to achieve in this society. We can discuss that. And it does go across different cultures. So if we look at some of the aspects, some of the values that really will help uh, any culture and say, okay, we have uh, a sacrifice. We talked about a little, a little bit earlier. That's one point. I think that there have been studies about little kids and those who know how to defer gratification tend to do better in life you know that is something that is a a, a, a studied research uh a kind of response for even children and and they track them over the years and see how you do and if that is part of it is that something that is just asian or did not many cultures do that and if that is something that other cultures did why are we trying to say it's only the Asians that it, which is not true. I mean, it's nice that the Asians happen to be doing it perhaps a little bit more now because they are uh, a a large immigrant population right now in in the U.S. And typically immigrants coming in know that they must sacrifice. You know that you come in thinking that you may have to sacrifice so that the next generation does better. That is part mm-hmm. of it. That is part mm-hmm. of everybody coming in to know that. Uh, it is not so easy to uh, give up uh, whatever you had in, the, uh, in, in another country, but you usually do not come from another country except that you think that this country will provide better opportunities. Our ancestors, your ancestors, did not come here because they thought that they would torture their future descendants. You know, they thought that coming to America would improve their lives. So uh, I think that that's something for us to uh, think about, that kind of... of of thinking of a long-term, what are the things that we want to do? We want to uh, prize education. We want to focus on uh, the work work ethic, which is not a Protestant, a white Protestant work ethic. I I remember the first time when I heard that somebody was accusing it of being a a white work ethic. And I said, what was that? The work ethic belongs (laughs) to everybody. You know, we can all partake in this. Uh, we can also think about the family structure. It is true that immigrant families tend to be much more uh, focused on the family, their, their more traditional structures. And uh, that is something that uh, people like to say, well, we don't want to talk about values. Well, it is about values. We should not be ashamed of values. Let's have a good conversation about it. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that you made a really important distinction there. It's not and uh, because because Asian Americans Chinese Americans in particular are a very large immigrant group but it really is a, it, it is in some ways an attribute of many immigrants to work hard study hard i mean they didn't come you know they came to better their lives so there is that that um ethos if you will and but <laughs> you you said something um in your article that made me made me laugh that you know i'm not going to apologize for studying you know, I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't have to say sorry, shouldn't have to apologize for studying. I really like that. And that made me think of something that Kenny Shue was talking to us You know about the whole, you know, in his book, Inconvenient Minority. And he said something that was really interesting to me. He said, you know, you can you can to a certain extent choose culture. Right. I mean, like studying, you can choose that as if, if you want to adopt that as part of your culture, as part of who you are. That's a choice. So there's a lot in culture that is, is that is actually we we have some determination over. And so to ascribe studying hard only to Asian cultures is really that's that's kind of ridiculous, you know? I mean it's a choice. Agreed.
1: Agreed. Anybody can study. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and we we have to uh, and we have a lot of people apologizing for studying. We we had uh, people who would regret and say that, gee, uh, uh, I have my kids studying and you're a little bit ashamed of it. And I'm thinking, why are you ashamed of doing something good? You shouldn't boast of it. You shouldn't walk out and say, hey, I studied 20 hours today. Uh, That's not what we're supposed to be doing. But I think that to be able to say that I'm not ashamed and you have to hide it, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people do say that, well, the Asians, they're just uh, study robots, they're test robots. Uh, that's not true. Uh, if you look at what has happened, and I, um, I know that Kenny, uh, as well as many other people have talked about is that uh, the Asians, if you look at their, the applicants to college, uh, they have tremendous extracurriculars. They have a lot of the same things that you would look for anywhere. It's not just that they do well in the academic scores, but these are full human beings. Uh, they can do the, the same kind of things in, in uh, working in your uh, not just your laboratory uh, competitions and robotics teams, but they are kids who are playing an instruments uh, and doing very well in playing the instruments. It's not just like a, a, a uh, once-a-week type of thing. Uh, they will be in athletic teams, they will be dancing, they will be singing, they will be doing the arts. Uh, these are not sort of uh, one-dimensional people, but to be able to, to lump them in that kind of way, to call them uh, one-dimensional, uh, to to just, uh, just strike them off as being a model minority, that's uh, absolutely uh, a stereotype that doesn't really uh, do people any good. It's okay to have certain attributes that you say, well, you know, that's a good thing to have um, to talk about some of the values that we've discussed over here, Uh, but to just say, well, you know, it's just because they're Asian. So we don't have to care about those values. No, it should be the other way around. It should be that we care about these values and because the Asians are having it, let's go and replicate those for any culture on the aside for when we're talking about model minorities, uh, I think that we have to remember that Asians are extremely diverse. And when you're talking about a, a population that is um, globally in nearly half of humanity uh, with countries that have been in very long cultures that are long, religions, languages, all very different to lump the, them all as one monolithic group uh, is it, actually absurd. Uh, it shows a well, like, lack of understanding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if
3: we're going to do that, then there are actually three Asians on this uh, on this podcast right now. and One Asian wannabe. Um, I'm fifty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm fifty point four percent Western Asian. My mom is from Baghdad, Iraq, uh, according to Twenty Three and Me. So I'm a majority Asian. Um, my Chinese wife does not think I qualify, but that's another, you know, I, I, we, we have this argument all the time, but you know, I, it, it, it strikes me as strange sometimes that we're creating all these affinity groups as if Asians all have the same experience. It's a kind of stereotyping really, if anything, that, um, that we're doing, you know, um, what does a Chinese, what, what, in what way does a Chinese person have more in common with, a fellow Asian Iranian, and then they do a Russian, um, and I think it just it, it sort of contrives a certain affinity, ethnic affinity that probably doesn't exist and makes no sense. But that's what happens when you start forcing everybody down these sort of identity categories. Um, George, what do you think about all this?
2: Well, uh, <laughs> well um, we have covered a wide range of subject, but but I, I think you're right. The Chinese and Jennifer, you might, and you might recognize this, they have a notion of, of junzi and xiao ren. Mm-hmm. is usually translated as, what, a man of virtue. And xiao ren is literally a small person, a little person. But I, but I think what, what I want to, to focus on is a smallness of mind. And I think this balkanization, this division of pitting one group into smaller and smaller identities, are literally making us into smaller and smaller human beings. Uh, I, you know, Bwewa said earlier, we do not apologize for education. Um, I, I'll go a little further. Uh, we should not apologize for civilization. Um, civilization is not pretty but Western civilization is, is a real wonder. It, it's, it, it's an amazing thing, starting from Judeo-Christian tradition, the Greeks, uh, the Renaissance, the Italians, and, and all of that belongs to everyone. And if you want to make your mind big, grand, you want to embrace all of that, uh, which is why uh, Glenn Lowry in one of his speeches, said something that they really struck at home. He said, Tolstoy belongs to me. Dickens belongs to me. Yes. Newton belongs to me. Maxwell belongs to me. And Einstein belongs to me. And I think yes. the same way. That is how we attain humanity fully, rather than make us smaller and smaller and smaller.
3: Yeah. Right. So, so what about this notion of
2: cultural appropriation? I knew you were, gonna go so there, you knew you were gonna going to go there, David. I knew I was going to go there. I, I, I want <laughs> to, to jump in here. I mean, yes, I'll continue with that thread later. But I think one appropriation that is really ridiculous is when people appropriate the sufferings of their ancestors as if they went through it themselves. And I think that is a really absurd appropriation. But yes, cultural appropriation. Go ahead.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, that well, that by actually, the way is an interesting thing
1: as well. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say not just cultural appropriation of your own ancestors' sufferings, but how about other ancestors' sufferings? We see that happening too, and so we we have this race, this this competition for how we can really consider ourselves to to be the biggest, uh, most culturally appropriating sufferer. And so it it used to be that you would say that, well, that is a little bit insufferable. But uh, people don't understand what that means right now. And we've got to go back and say that we have to think positively in trying to fix some of the problems. Granted, we have problems in this community, in this whole world, which we're always trying to advance. From. We want to go forward. And to go forward, you cannot keep on hopping on some of the things that are in the past. You have to go forward. I'm, I'm looking at this right now and saying that Jennifer and I, you know, we're, we're two women sitting over here. And uh, just a 100 years ago, women did not have the right to vote. Are we going to hop on that for the rest of humanity? I do not think that is a very good thing. We should use That right that we have now, for the betterment of the world.
0: I mean, here's a question though for you. It's changing the topic a little. Well, David, did you get enough of the cultural appropriation? Did you get your answers?
3: I did not (laughs) get get my fill. You did not get your fill. I
0: did not get my fill. But you go ahead. No, 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 no. Let's go on that thread. Uh, Mine, mine is kind of changing gears. So, yeah, carry on. You
3: know. Okay, so you know. I mean, you're all familiar with this idea of cultural appropriation. It seems to me that in some cases it can be a legitimate concern. In other words, I don't necessarily think walking around in blackface is a respectful thing to do. And I think it's okay to critique that practice. I'm sure there's incidents are examples of it that were not meant to be demeaning but there's probably a lot more that were specifically demeaning um, I'm I'm sure that the, you one could come up with um, a way in which appropriating a Chinese cultural practice could be looked at as disrespectful and demeaning to the uh, to the to the people and other examples where you might think if you uh, want to look at it that way? Is it's sort of a kind of flattery?
1: Um, h- how do you how do you think about it? I think you've hit it right there that sometimes it's an insult and sometimes it's flattery. And so if everybody is using chopsticks, we don't say, "Oh, you're not allowed to use chopsticks because you're not Asian." Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, if people want to use it, uh, we think that that's great. And if you like Chinese food, you like Japanese food, you like Korean food or Thai food or Filipino food uh, and Indian food. You know, that's so many different provinces there, too. Uh, Even Chinese food, I should say. Uh, What is wrong with that? Uh, But if you want to say that I'm going to use it and put chopsticks in my hair, uh, I think that that's a little bit too far. You know, that that would be sort of uh, weird and and uh, concerning so to say. So you have to use a little judgment, but I think that that goes with nearly anything. Uh, this, this is sort of the moment in My Cousin Vinny when, when, when the lawyer walks in wearing this cowboy suit and the judge says, are you mocking me? And so you have to think about it and put it in context. Are you mocking somebody or are you just saying, I really like it? And there are people who, there are people from the Northeast who like to wear cowboy hats, Okay. And uh, I'm not going to deny them of that privilege if uh, that pleasure, if it is not done in a mocking manner. Just for the record,
3: you know, someone who's married to a Chinese woman and has gotten better at chopsticks, I will say I've gotten better at chopsticks whenever there's like you know, something that my wife does not feel that I should be using a chopstick for, she will actually order the spoon from the kitchen. So, um, so it's not an act of mockery or cultural appropriation And I use chopsticks, I will say that. Okay,
2: go ahead. I also think it, it, it's, you know, to, to focus on, on small things like this, it, it's a reflection of going back to, to that Shao Ren. smallness of mind. We have so many bigger things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Why pick on so such small? Why nurse such small injuries, and and make a living off? Well,
0: you mm-hmm. guys will be happy to know, here in America, I was married in a chiepao. So there, I was very, <laughs> I took cultural appropriation all the way to my marriage,
1: <laughs> and so, I, I think that's wonderful. If you think about it, that this notion of uh, people wearing white wedding gowns throughout the world now. That did not start, uh, you know, in, in, in say, right. Japan or, or uh, China, but they're doing it there, and it's okay. Uh, we're, we're wearing blue jeans uh, around the world, uh, and that's okay. And we have to, to uh, say that that's part of the exchange between different cultures. We're talking about the lowest levels, obviously. When we're talking about the higher aspects of philosophy, of what we believe are the basic principles of, of what it means to be actually civilized. Uh, wh- what is a enlightened uh, civilization and society and governance uh, that goes above uh, just, uh, I like this food versus not, you know, that, that's a very low order, uh, but I think that that is reflective. If we cannot be, uh, if we are not able to uh, be open-minded and a big person in trying to be expansive and inclusive, you're not going to be able to deal with the bigger issues the more important issues that bind us all in humanity.
0: Yeah, and then I also think mm-hmm. this is something that um Greg Thomas was saying. I mean, so much of of the art that we create, I mean, that's a gift to the world. You know, it's meant to be shared. <laughs> so, uh but keep it to ourselves, I mean, we're 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 not expanding the scope of humanity in a way.
2: So I've got a question. I mean, it's interesting that that classical music um, Mm -hmm. is really big in China. And and of course, if you you look at the best performers in classical music, a lot of them are Jewish or Chinese. And, Mm -hmm. you know,
0: Mikhail Wang playing Rachmaninov. Why not? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Well actually let me before I ask this question let me ask both of you George and Waywa. So um the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York it was founded in 2018 am i correct?
1: No. Uh the the let's go back with a little bit. Uh the Chinese American Citizens Alliance the national organization was actually founded in 1895. 1895. And so it's a the, it's a very very old organization, the oldest uh civil rights organization actually. Uh, for civil rights. you know, So there are many other associations that might be for uh, Chinese or Asians. And it was founded actually right at, uh, in response to the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the Chinese Exclusion Act was the only time that America had laws that were uh, taking away certain civil rights from a group based on ethnicity. So based on ethnicity, they uh, actually carved away a lot of uh, rights. So uh, that was not repealed, actually, until uh, World War II, and and it took uh, that many years for that to happen. But the Chinese American Citizens' Alliance was founded then. Uh, We in the Chinese American Citizens' Alliance of Greater New York, we were founded in 2016, at the end of 2016. uh, And uh, we have focused on issues that we think are particularly compelling, uh, starting with education. Uh, That, we think, is a a major issue. And, uh, And that has we looked at education and said, why is this happening? And that's how we got into other areas like critical race theory. Why have we taken such a strong stand against it? Because this kind of racial essentialism is tearing our people apart. And that's really trying to determine whether a kid should be able to get ahead or not, not based on his own ability, but based on what this external externality that they cannot do anything about. You know, if if a person cannot do anything about something, they should not be punished for it or rewarded for it. You know, you shouldn't be rewarded for something that you didn't earn, really. In that way, uh, and and uh, to judge for the schools uh, to take a test, uh, we started off with this specialized high school's test. It's a Um, background blind, uh, race blind, gender blind, um, uh, economic blind test, you have to just do the academics right. And so we're talking about schools. We're talking about STEM schools. So an academic test makes sense. So that's how we started on that, because it is a core issue that deals with discrimination. And we're trying to address discrimination on many points. Uh, That's how we got into the critical race theory and critical theory in general, because it's not just race, but in a number of different areas. Um, And then also that relates to, as we mentioned before, uh, the attacks against Asians. Uh, There are lots of things that are are related. Why have we also um, forced the community-based jail, what they call the community-based jail in Chinatown? It's the same kind of thing that they do in trying to say, oh, this is a group that's easy to pick on. Let's throw them in another jail, uh, barring the, the notion that they already have four jails in the community. It's not like a NIMBY situation. We have the jails there already, uh, but it's just that they figure that it's easy to go and um, uh, oppress uh, th- this community because they, they are not, they have not been as politically uh, active in the past.
0: So that's um, I'm sorry. I I want to make sure I understood you. So that's a recent phenomenon. That's a recent development with a a jail. A jail, yes, correct. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, They 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 have plans to build a mega jail right on uh, right off Canal Street, right next to a senior center for mostly Asian uh, Chinese um, elders. And so, uh, when you think about what that can do to their lives and to the community. It's a horrible thing. It will. It's. It, it started off as a forty-story jail. There's nothing like that in the world. Uh, there are all sorts of issues about it, just on the the, the actual concept. Uh, conceptually, it doesn't even make sense. But to put it also in the heart of an a community, um, it does not serve the community. It is actually going to damage the community substantially. And if we talk about it's the, the shadow it will cast on the park and then the dust and the noise right next to the elders, right in the senior homes, trying to get some some nice final days of their lives. I, I think it's a horrible thing. So we have uh, fought against that as well.
0: So I w- I've been, you know, the, with the whole education thing in New York, I mean, basically the public school system is broken to begin with. You know, it, it, I think that there's a, there's a lot wrong there and that's a whole, whole nother issue. And I understand the idea of wanting to give the best education to a wide number of people, but I don't believe that taking away the gifted programs is takes you towards that aim. I think that there needs to be a complete overhaul of, of public school systems and what and you mentioned something earlier about extracurriculars and what role if any for someone who maybe does not have the 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 means the, the finances to but has the will but not the finances to get their children into the programs that would help them to succeed you know scholastically what role should our state or government play if if any in providing those additional, Resources.
1: I'm going to answer in two parts. One okay. is that I think that, of course, the, the government can say that we're we're going to try to improve education for all uh, districts. You know, so every place uh, the kids are going to be focusing more on education to start. So instead of saying that we're going to have math appreciation or history appreciation and um and and uh, psychological uh, abuse or just. Social emotional learning that they're they're trying to put in that is not really going to serve the best part, but the worst part of those things. You know, these terms all sound great, and at the best they will do some good. At the worst, they will be incredibly harmful. Um, it, but beyond the what the 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 government, the public school system can do, uh, they should be looking at also some other alternatives. And the charter schools are one of them. And if you think about charter schools, the, some of the publicly funded schools, the best performing ones happen to be charter schools. Mm -hmm. And they happen to be highly, highly uh, Black and and Hispanic uh, demographics. So Mm -hmm. that's the one thing. You know, we shouldn't look at, oh, we have to have a certain mix. I think we should have excellence. And Mm -hmm. these uh, kids of all races want to have the opportunity to have good schools wherever they live. You know, there doesn't have to be a certain place. And they don't need to, I think it's insulting to say that a a minority kid cannot perform well unless they happen to be sitting next to a white kid. That's not true. I I, I think that if you look at the history of uh, schools in many countries, in fact, you're going to find them perhaps just one race, and that's okay. You don't have to have it. And that's the most important thing is to have the great schools. And then that goes back to what we were saying before of having uh, the, the colleges when people from all over the world come over here uh, they seek it because there's excellence here. They don't seek it because they can uh, take uh, check that box of being one percent of whatever demographic that they're trying to represent. No, they're looking for excellence. Now, the other side of it is saying, what do you do if you don't have resources? Uh, I will remind people that there is something called public libraries, okay, yeah, and, and and people should use them. Uh, uh, we have resources that now and uh, now that the the Uh, Internet is uh, widely available. You also have resources there. But I'll go back to the humble Library. Uh, You actually do have a lot of the resources there for taking, for example, the specialized high school uh, test, the SHSAT. Every year, they have books this thick, this thick, that they give for free to any kid who wants to pick it up that will have a number of actual tests. They will have practice questions. They will discuss what you need to know. It's all available for free. And not only can you take those home and keep them forever and scratch them up, you can also borrow additional books that are there for anybody who would want it. You can actually prepare for any of these tests. And so we should encourage people to use these. Now, I'll, I'll mention this, that uh, uh, in one case, I was talking to a reporter um, uh, who didn't like the test, obviously. And, and she was uh, talking of, about well, you know, everybody has to go and take these expensive courses uh and I said that's not true. You could go to the library and you could get all of these uh, materials uh I certainly know a lot of people who never took one of those courses and who did pass based on either just buying a book and doing the tests themselves, or they would go and borrow them and and uh, you know what the reporter responded to me she said. Well, you know about libraries, that's privilege. And I, I just was astounded. I That I could not answer to because if you are in eighth grade and you do not know what a library is, a public library in New York City, then maybe you're not quite the right student for going into a specialized high school. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get the best schooling, the best education for your abilities and interests and commitment but maybe the specialized high schools is not for somebody who does not know what a public library is. So that's where I'm talking a little bit about what the country, not uh, the government can do, but also what an individual can do. I think we can, from both sides, try to address this this um, lack or, or uh, deficient education that you are getting in the public schools.
2: Mm-hmm. I also think that, education being a public good, although I think we need to really scrutinize that because what passes for education is no longer education. But let's say education is a public good. The funding should follow the student, not the school.
0: Mm, That's a good point. I mean, I just right now, there's a case up in here in Texas, a, a suburb up north where they're raising Taxes, because so many kids have left the school, and it's like you, you, the, the solution would be if the money followed the kid. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah.
3: there are there are institutions that do that. You know, it, you could see massive defunding of certain schools very quickly. It would be a very disruptive plan, for sure. Um, maybe it needs to be disrupted in that way. But, um, you know, look, I I have to say, though, that, you know, if we're talking about schools that are becoming highly ideological, the private schools and charter schools have not been any better and maybe have been even worse than a lot of the public schools when it comes to imposing ideological agendas. Um, And we have to at least consider that, you know, I mean, of course, it would allow us, um, those of us who believe that there needed to be new schools to exist, it would allow us to do that more easily. but. But I do think that that's that's a a challenge is that, you know, that schools, private schools, even charter schools have to be accredited. And I've I've spent a lot of time looking into the accreditation institutions and they are um, they are less trans, much less transparent than a school board is. You know, we can have our complaints Mm -hmm. about how school boards do things under wraps Mm -hmm. and don't aren't transparent about what the curriculum is or what the training programs that they're putting teachers through. And that's all true. And we should demand more transparency. You want to know what's not transparent is how a private school accrediting institution works mm-hmm. and how it uses to impose, you know, specific ideological requirements on these schools. So we have to be careful what we wish for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Aaron Sabarian mentioned that. that. I mean, that was shocking what he, you know, that what he unveiled for me in terms of the private school accreditation.
2: Well, that's why uh, I, I think it's a great development that this new college, the University of Texas. In, in Austin.
0: Austin, I know. Yes. Oh, that's
2: where you are. That's where okay. I am. <laughs> see, see
0: my longhorns behind me, yes. <laughs> um,
2: yes, so uh, because because if, 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 if there's a good destination, then uh, who cares if the kid went to an accredited high school or
0: not? Um. You know, on that note, let me go back to something that I started with. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I kind of just told you my position instead of asking about it. So did, do you also see, George and Weiwa, this um, fizzling, if you will, of interest in coming over to the United States, for, particularly for higher education from across the world? I mean, I'm not, yeah. going, I'm not crazy, right? <laughs> you are yeah, not. I
1: think you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. The, the opportunities in the other parts of the, uh, the world have increased. Uh, and the schools are focusing on basic education and, and research. And if we're going to spend all our time in struggle sessions, use struggle sessions over here in America, that, that detracts. Uh, we've seen it happen in other countries where they um, put the politics and the ideology in front of, of what basic education is and your science will lag your creativity and your uh, advances will lag um, your economy will suffer and those are the things that you expect to happen and so uh, we, we have to look at it and say that so we want to stop that earlier as opposed to later it's true that history has its cycles uh, this is a part there you know you may be in the wrong si- uh, part of it but you have to Try to get it back on track as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, we'll see how this. I'm looking forward to seeing how this university here in Austin. I think they're calling it the University of Austin, aren't they? I think yeah,
2: that's
0: yeah, they are. yeah. UATX. Yeah, but you know what? Austin's a weird place, so i I'm, I really want to know why they picked Austin, but that's a, that's a different. That's a different discussion.
3: <laughs> right. I'm not convinced that we can't recuperate certain universities and instill. An ethic of freedom of expression. Um, you know, I'm I'm in conversation of, um, with a trustee and a philanthropist of a specific university who is trying to get the university to switch gears, and he's had some success by asking some questions and you know, you can do an assessment of the university's culture, uh, both the faculty and students and set benchmarks. You can look at the Chicago letter that uh, laid down the law for the University of Chicago on freedom of expression and trigger warnings and safe spaces and the rest. Um, you, can, um, you can set up certain institutions within the university that value free speech and have a lecture series um, and, and the like, and, you know, and, and it may just be that certain universities looking around and saying, we're going to position ourselves that way in this environment, because we know that there are some people who want their kids and some kids will want to go to a university that are genuinely committed to the humanities and not, you know, a specific ideology that want to teach their kids how to think and not what to think. So I'm just wondering if, we're, if, if, if institutions like the University of Austin, maybe you have some thoughts on this, are throwing the towel too soon. Like that we've, we've, we've come to the conclusion that these institutions are so far gone that we, we can't save them. And I'm not there yet personally that these institutions can't be saved or some of them can't be saved. And it's an I, easier I route. That,
2: that I think that having a viable competitor it creates good incentives, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I
3: mean, in other words, if, if you get the University of Austin up and running and it's starting to attract students, that's going to force some other schools to say, okay, maybe we ought to use that model. It's a proof of concept in a way, too. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And also the faculty, the professors know that there's a place they can go to. That also creates some pressure within the department. So, yes, I don't think you need too many of the University of Austin's who caused a change, but I think having none makes the battle much harder.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah I agree with that. Yeah, Good point. yeah. So you're, you represent a slice of the Chinese American community. Um, you don't claim, I know, because I've talked to you both, that you're you're sort of representing the overwhelming majority sensibility. I can say the same about myself and my organization, that I think while there's a lot of people who secretly agree with me, th- that I'm still representing a minority of people who are willing at least to come out publicly and agree with me. Um, and And where do you see the your role in fostering change within your own community?
1: I think the very first thing is to step up and uh, say the things that people don't speak. It's sort of like saying the emperor has no clothes on. You know, somebody has to say these things. And if nobody says it, then later people will just cover it up, sweep it under the rug, and go on. We have to say that it is discrimination when you attack kids because of their race. When people, not just kids, but people for their race. Um, and then we have to deal with the bigger issues that we don't want attacks on any people, regardless of race. Uh, that's the general crime issue. And we want everybody to be able to have a better education. Uh, we don't want anybody to be. Excluded from having a good education based on their race, but we do want everybody to have an opportunity to have a better one. So this is the equal rights part as opposed to trying to say, "Oh, we're going to go for equal outcomes you know we We have to understand that we're trying to give the, that kind of equal rights to everybody to have this kind of opportunity. It does not guarantee that everybody's going to come out at the same place, but I think that we want to make sure that nobody's rights are taken away. So we want to go and first tell people about some of these issues. We want to stand up for a lot of these uh, uh, problems that are happening in the community. And then in cases where we need to, we might have some lawsuits, and we do have a couple of lawsuits against uh, the city of New York uh, and the Department of Education for its discrimination. So we would like more people to think about how their kids are being affected and be able to step up. And you see that happening throughout the country now, you know, more parents are saying that we have some problems in what's happening to our schools, to our children, and they're speaking up. Uh, We want to encourage that kind of movement everywhere. Uh, What happened in Loudoun should be happening everywhere. When we demand for transparency and say that, yes, uh, we have a right as individuals, as parents, as members of some distinct group, it could be Asian or Jewish, um, or, or it could be Irish Catholic versus Italian Catholic, uh, or Dominican Hispanic versus your Peruvian Hispanic. I, I think that we could go and slice and dice it too much, but I think we should stay very clear on the, the unifying principles, uh, which can lead us together more. Yeah,
2: yeah I, I think that, you know, the, the, the fight that we have in the Chinese community is for meritocracy. And for an expansiveness of mind that embraces, uh, with a certain openness, other cultures and other civilizations. But but I, I think that the, the bigger fight is, is for those principles, meritocracy. And that is not necessarily a Chinese fight. It just happens that in this current situation, the Chinese are in the best position to step up. Um, you know, Stuyvesant used to be 90% Jewish. Um, and, and, uh, and uh, Brooklyn Tech, the largest special high school, used to be nine, uh, more than half black and Hispanic for 20 years. And, and now the fastest growing ethnicity in Stuyvesant is Bangladeshi, the mm-hmm. South Asian. You know, I think that we're all in the same fight. It just happened that the Chinese are, are thrust in the position where they need to step up. I mean, if the Bangladeshis one day are attacked uh, and they have to defend meritocracy, obviously. We will support them, but they are in the best position to step up. So so in a way, I don't think that all Chinese Americans uh, or, or any ethnicity uh, will, will step up for the fight for meritocracy and and, and, and and enlightenment values. Uh, but I think we can cut across to reach out to other groups and find people of a similar spirit um, who, who will join the fight.
3: Let me ask you a question i know we're running out of time here but w- one more you know i we've all read about tiger moms and you know and um you know i the, like every stereotype it's partially true i would say and partially untrue You know that we all there's a reason why there are stereotypes become stereotypes. They have some reflection sometimes in who we are. I I note that um, Coleman Hughes um, had a podcast with Brett Weinstein, and he was talking about he was talking about his growing up, and he had a, a Chinese friend and a jewish friend i believe and the Ch- and when he would go to dinner at the chinese friend he saw the mom who was like the you know the fierce tiger mom pushing homework in a way that his parents never did and he went with the jewish family and he saw the arguments over the dinner table that they that they had and and i think he learned something from both that there are certain cultural attributes that probably in different ways were responsible for these sort of c- collective traits that we see in these communities and yet you know with every just like every individual trait can be a asset or a liability. I think cultural traits can also be an asset or liability, so one can easily say about like the tiger mom uh, archetype you know that's can be really rough on mental health for kids um, It might work to get kids to 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 you know practice the piano for three hours a day or to uh you know get a's in math when they might have gotten B's otherwise but it is also pretty tough on a kid. And, and, you know, you see a lot of this, sort of these mental health manifestations among Asian American kids. Is that something that gives you pause in the whole meritocracy
2: ideal? I have very so strong gonna... feelings on this. So I'm going to jump in and okay. <laughs> <I can laughs> correct my, my, I have very strong feelings about this, because okay, I've heard good. that said. I've heard that said, and, and especially when people want to talk about the model minority, saying that the model minority, case, uh, model minority myth is causing mass suicide among Chinese, among Asian Americans. That's ah,
3: exaggerated. And the way
2: I say, I, the way I address that is, you know, most, most of the Chinese Americans are, you know, many of them, uh, especially in New York City, are not rich. Okay? They, they don't live in the best neighborhoods. Hmm. So they come home, they can study, or they can go on the streets. Which is better? Sure, there are a couple of suicides a year among the Chinese Americans, but in terms of overall deaths, gang deaths, um, drug overdose, bullying deaths, uh, internet, online bullying, suicides, uh, uh, dietary, uh, health um, disorder from eating deaths. You know, if you put all that together, the Chinese American suicide or death rate is very, very small. You know, I forgot to mention um, binge drinking deaths and, and drug overdose deaths, did I mention yeah. that already? And, and car accidents from drunken driving deaths. You know, yes, you can study, or if you're not studying, you can get in trouble. You, you really can given the social context in which many of these families live, okay? And, and I think that the studying is, is, is I'll prefer overall, the, if you have to give me the two packages, I'll take the studying. Are,
3: are they really just two packages? In
2: other words- but There I, are many I, other packages, I, but, right. but I think mm-hmm. that the majority culture package is exactly that, especially in, in communities that are contiguous to the Chinese communities in New York City. You know, it's not that far from the Chinese communities where um, a lot of people in the black community end up in jail. Uh, by the time they are thirty, at least once are arrested you know the, 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 there's a given this kind of climate, I think you know keep them home or keep them in a in right. a study uh, right. school you know and the, keep the, them the, out the of
3: it, trouble It seems to me that, that the New York example is an interesting one, and it's obviously it's a it's a very large place new york but but I live for example, in Montgomery county, Maryland, right It has got one of the highest average achievement rates of any school district in the United States. The, the high school that my stepkids go um, is probably, I think about 40% Asian American, overwhelmingly Chinese American. A lot of Jewish kids go there. It is, I think, the third highest average test score high school in the state of Maryland. Now And, and by the way, the, the first highest is another school that's almost exactly like it, about five miles away um so um i'm i'm familiar with this but there is this is a suburban um model now right and the option you know you're, the kid who doesn't study hard is not necessarily opting for gang violence so i understand that when close proximity in inner city areas and poor areas especially that might be the the alternative package but in a place like Montgomery county it's not necessarily the case so i just i do think it, it the, the dynamic changes a little there and 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 i agree by the way that i'm sure you're right about the percentages and the number of suicides i'm sure that's correct but it doesn't mean that that's ultimately the optimal cultural paradigm for the community does it I mean, you could still let, say, let, "Well, maybe we should soften a little bit on the on the Tiger Mom accelerator." Um,
1: okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in a little over here. Uh, I think that the, the, there are things that are are excessive. Uh, parents should know what a kid is able to do and achieve, and not ask somebody who is able to jump five feet to jump twenty feet. It's not normal. You don't do that as a regular parent. Now, on the margins of it, you have to say, why is it that the Asians will say that you should study harder? Um, part of it is that we do believe that studying is good, okay? But and setting that aside, when you know that the numbers are against you, when you know that the kids are going to be barred from the school because of their race, then you have to achieve even higher and work even harder. So what is a parent to do? Does a parent say work harder? Or does a parent say give up? You have no hope. I think it is better to tell them that you do have some hope. It may be hard for you. It will be harder because of what you happen to be, not by what you've done, but because of the unfortunate dynamics that we have that will not judge you by your own personal, individual merits, but by your group identity. Yes, you will have to work harder, but that sure beats telling them, there's no hope for you, kid.
3: I agree with that. Well, it's a so fascinating if want to conversation. So you about that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> We're gonna to have to bring it, was it Amy Chu? Isn't she the one who wrote the book? Amy on? Chua, yeah. The, yeah.
2: Chua, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry if I pronounced it. I, I have um, her um, book, by the way, her book review in front of me on Amazon. Talking about the triple threat, I looked it up, and uh, the similarity between Chinese and Jewish uh, <laughs> cultural attitudes very similar,
3: right? She's actually married to a Jewish man, by the way. Yes, um, he is. It is right. It is a little different. And look, the truth is that most Jews are in third or fourth generation households, right? So the Jew of American Jew of today, which uh, is no is not necessarily being raised the same way that their parents or grandparents were raised because they've been. More established on the American scene, um, so it's 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 not always a very fair comparison in a way. What you describe
2: um, actually is more of a immigrant phenomenon because you know the Jamaican mom or the Nigerian mom is not any easier than the Chinese mom.
0: Yeah, right. I think that goes back to what what we said at the beginning because I think you, you do see that stereotype in a lot of immigrant. Fam- if you're going to put a stereotype on it, I don't think it's due to race, but maybe that, that experience of the immigration, the immigration experience. Right,
2: especially when there is uh, discrimination too.
0: Yeah. On top of that.
2: Right,
3: right. Well, this has been fascinating and I hope we can continue the conversation.
1: Yeah, we'll let you get on with your
0: evening.
3: I know we will.
1: (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. We We thank you for this opportunity. I think that these are uh, very interesting times that we're in and so uh, i think that we need more than ever to be thinking together to have an open exchange to have the transparency that we want in uh, our school rooms as well as our boardrooms and on our streets
2: yeah thank, thank you absolutely thank you and, Thanks a million. Uh, and latkes are mine <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think we about it. Right. One last, you know, my, my my wife and I one time went to the Lower East side slash Chinatown in New York and we did a comparison of Chinese cuisine and 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 Jewish, you know, traditional Ashkenazic foods like the Kanish and the so forth. And according to her, the Chinese food won hands down. So <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> and um, she's unbiased, of course, she's unbiased, but,
1: but, but, you know, I think that this is one of the wonderful things about New York or, or about America, you can get bagels anywhere now in the country, just as you can get some good, a reasonable fried rice all across the country too. That's what it's all about. Uh, oh, That's yeah. what it's all The
3: democratization of our food. <laughs> Amen. Yes. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.